Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you again as we continue our studies in the most famous sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as it's called. We're in Matthew chapter 5 once again, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 33 to 48. If you've got a Bible in front of you, it'll be a help to me and to you, I hope, if you're able to turn it up, Matthew chapter 5. But as you're turning there, why don't I lead us in prayer? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we do want to praise you for the forgiveness that there is in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that though we fall short of your standards, of who we should be, we fall short even of our own standards, that nevertheless in Christ there is forgiveness and justification, that we can be adopted as your children and live with you as our Lord. Pray that by your spirit you would teach us this morning more of what it means to live as your people to the praise and glory of your name. Amen. And if you found uh, Matthew chapter 5, then I'm going to read to us from verse 33. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'll begin, if I may, with some words of um, Don Carson, the, the opening words of his great little book on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the the more that I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I'm both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. 
And I know that's been the experience of many of us, me included, over the last month or so as we've studied chapter 5. These words of Jesus simultaneously lay us bare as they confront us with our failures. And they inspire us as they describe for us a better kingdom and summon us to a better life. And we're going to feel that that dynamic again this morning. Verse 48 is our summary. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's not telling us how to become Christians. None of us will ever be perfect in this life, even for a day. We're thankful as Christians that salvation is won for us by Jesus and through his death on the cross. But those who have given his kingdom by grace will now want to live kingdom lives. We'll want to listen to our king and to do what he says so that when the rains come, we stand. Uh, You may remember that Jesus' big point over these last few weeks has been that he came not to abolish God's Old Testament law, but to fulfill it. And since verse 21, he's been giving worked examples of what that means in practice. Different ways that we can be more like our perfect father in heaven. And there are six in total. We looked at three last week and we're going to try and consider the final three this morning. In each of them, Jesus draws a contrast between the phony interpretation of God's law that was being peddled by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and God's truth, Jesus' own fulfillment of the law. First this morning then, there's to be no lying on our lips, just truth. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let me contrast first what I'm calling the way of the world, that of fingers crossed and a forked tongue. We know in our own society something of the the cost of a culture of deceit. Our public life has been so racked with with fake news and half-truths and downright lies, even from those that we're meant to be able to trust, that we take very little at face value anymore. We see a a special offer and we presume that there's a catch. We hear a politician speak and their words are immediately fact-checked by pundits because the truth only ever seems to, to be between the lines. Social media accounts are often as much an exercise in self-promotion and trying uh, to look like our life is exciting as they are a true record of who we are. But God wanted his people to be different. Verse 33 isn't an exact quotation, but it's a fair summary of a few verses in the Old Testament that encouraged truthfulness. 
Very simply, God's people were to be men and women of their, their word, to mean what they said and to say what they meant. And just occasionally in life, at a moment of, of great solemnity, Old Testament Israelites would take a, a public oath that was meant to guarantee the truthfulness of what they were saying. A bit like you might have to if you're in a law court today. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had twisted the system completely so that only some of those oaths were binding. A bit later in Matthew, in chapter 23, Jesus gives some examples. So they were saying, for example, that that if someone swore by the temple, then their oath didn't count. Uh, They didn't have to do what they'd said. But if they swore by the gold of the temple, then it did. If you swore by the altar, you weren't bound. But if you swore by a gift on the altar, you were bound. And it was this absurd distortion. They'd taken a system that was about truth and turned it into an elaborate mechanism for lying. First thing Jesus does is demonstrate just how illogical that they're being. And then he points to a better way. From verse 34, he's saying God is the God of the whole world. So you can't go around swearing by things and imagine that your oath doesn't matter just because you didn't use God's name. You can't swear by heaven because that's God's throne. You can't swear by the earth because that's his footstool. Jerusalem is the city of the great king, so that's out. Even the, the hair on your head belongs to him. You can't even change its color without chemical help. So you can't swear by that. Instead then of the the way of the world, we have the straight-talking way of God's kingdom. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. The point is that, that words are a very valuable currency When God chose to reveal himself, he did it in words. He's a God who cannot lie. Jesus said, I am the truth. He said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. Our God is the God of truth. And so the question is, when it comes to us, are we perfectly truthful like our Father in heaven? Or are we more like the father of lies? We know that children let themselves off the hook of honesty all the time. Uh, They make you a promise, but they cross their fingers behind their back so it doesn't count. Or they say, no, I swear I'm telling the truth. But of course, if you only need to swear that you're telling the truth this time, if you know that I shouldn't really be trusting you the rest of the time, That's children, but are we so different? One professor from the University of Virginia claims that 20% of all 10-minute social conversations include a lie. No idea how they worked it out, but that's what they think. A lexicographer called Bergen Evans said, lying is an indispensable part of making life tolerable. 
I found a, a whole website dedicated to euphemisms for lying. Winston Churchill used to speak of terminological inexactitudes. We talk of someone being economical with the truth. And our daily speech can so easily be full of half-truths. So to someone, I'm not sure if your email ever came through, which means I read it but forgot to act on it. I'll be home in half an hour, maybe. I'll get back to you before the end of the day. I don't want to deal with this now. I'll be praying for you. I would have loved to come. It's easy to get frustrated at the spin of politicians and then to to tweak a story we're telling to present ourselves in a good light or to use our ability with words to hide the truth or to reveal only part of the truth to make ourselves look good whilst telling ourselves that we didn't technically tell a lie. But it's all double talk and it is straight from the devil. Of course, we could get into the minutiae of ethical casuistry. Someone came up to me a while back and said, so what am I meant to say if someone says, does my bum look big in this? Or what what happens if I'm asked a direct question and answering it would require me to break a confidence? Those are are good things to, to think through. But actually chasing down those avenues today, I think would, would miss the point and the force of what Jesus is saying. This is about our heart attitude. He's saying, be like your father in heaven. Just tell the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. First this morning then, no lying on our lips, just truth. Second, no resting on our rights, just sacrifice. Let me read from verse 38. Again, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, let's contrast the way of the world and the way of the kingdom. The way of the world is fighting for your rights. Verse 38 is known as the, the Lex Talionis. It's repeated in Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And it was basically trying to prevent people from behaving like the mafia and responding to every personal slight by escalating the, the violence and taking vengeance. And you may have seen a film in which it sort of works in this way. You insult my mother, so I have to shoot your dog and you can't stand for that, so you kill my brother and then I have to firebomb your wedding. And violence breeds more violence. It is the way of the world around us. And so there was a, a lot of sense in a law that restricted personal vengeance and told the state how to punish criminals fairly. 
But by Jesus' day, it was being abused. It was being treated not as a restriction, but as a prescription and being used by some as an excuse to take the law into their own hands. And so here, Jesus sweeps away all the abuse and says that his kingdom is one of personal sacrifice. Verse 39, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. This isn't a verse about pacifism on a state level. It's a point about personal relationships. And the Christian won't stand on our rights or try to force our agenda and will on other people. But we'll be marked instead by deep and costly self-sacrifice. And the four illustrations make the point. First in verse 39, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. Now, a a sharp slap to the cheek with the back of your hand was a gross insult. And for many of us, our natural response to being insulted is to fight fire with fire. Here we're to choose further humiliation above retaliation. Maybe a, a colleague mocks us in front of everyone else and we We long to cut them down to size. And the Christian just laughs at themselves instead. Someone in the the family treats us badly. We're desperate to defend the honor of our name. We don't want to be misunderstood or misrepresented. And the Christian takes it on the chin and carries on. It's not an absolute rule, of course. Other passages make it clear that if someone is being bullied or abused, it is, it is 100% right for the Christian to avail myself of the protections that the law affords. But in our relationships, it's not about point scoring and getting even. It's about turning the other cheek. Second illustration, verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. A Jewish law said that a a man shouldn't be deprived of his cloak even for a night because it was how he, he kept warm on a cold evening. But here the Christian is is willing to sacrifice even their rights for the sake of peace. Maybe a colleague is being unreasonable or a friend is being unfair and you'd be well within your rights to complain and resist. And Jesus is saying, let it go, be a peacemaker. Third illustration, verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The law said that a Roman soldier could require a civilian to carry his bags for a mile. And Jesus says, if you get asked... Don't be all irritable and hard done by, but volunteer to double your obligation and to do it with a smile on your face. No angry aggression, no bristling of the pride, no it's beneath me to empty the dishwasher or whatever, no what's in it for me, just humble, costly, self-sacrificial service. The final illustration is in verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So easy, isn't it, to be 
selfish and tight-fisted with the things that are gifts to us from God and that he's entrusted us with to use for his glory and the good of others. So easy to be selfish, but the Christian has a generous heart. Again, it's not an unbending law about how to respond to someone begging on the, the street. A clear limit to the principle is love. Many would think it's not always loving to give money to a beggar on a street. Food, yes. Time, yes. Help, yes. Respect, always. But not always money. Because we know it might be used to feed a habit that is already harming that dear one made in God's image. But I should certainly never use that judgment call as an excuse to justify being detached and cold and to stand aloof from the pain of another human being. Because in all four illustrations, Jesus is training our heart. He's inviting us to become more like him. Remember the one who came to earth from heaven, not to be served, but to serve. And when people insulted Jesus, he didn't revile them in return. When they threatened, he didn't retaliate. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And his willing and humble self-sacrifice is to be our daily pattern of life. Well, I wonder if, like me, you need this reminder this morning that there is something more important than getting our way. There's a higher priority than standing our ground. Something matters more than winning. Behind the, the steering wheel of a car, in a conversation at home, in correspondence with someone or a company who are being unreasonable. I wonder, does the, the red mist ever descend if your name is slighted? Does pride ever take over? Do you ever walk away wondering, where, where did that reaction come from? Or I've been asking myself, is, is my service of others ever grudging or limited? It's embarrassing, but I do sometimes catch myself thinking, surely I've done my bit now. Isn't it someone else's turn? One writer says, you can't meditate on this sermon for long without feeling shame. He adds, it leaves us gasping with dismay. That's my experience of it, and I'm sure it's yours too. But there is a, a kindness to Jesus here as he takes his surgeon's scalpel to our pride. Of course it hurts, but one can't help but be drawn to the beauty of Jesus' perfect kingdom. It leaves us longing, I hope, to be more like him, not resting on our rights, but living lives of humble sacrifice. Finally this morning, third main heading, no conditions on our kindness, just love. Verse 43, 
You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Oh, five of our points over the last fortnight have been about different aspects of personal relationships. You may have noticed that anger, lust, divorce, lies, retaliation. They all destroy personal relationships. And that makes this final point a good place to end. Because if you want a a one-word summary of the whole of the Old Testament law that Jesus came to fulfill, it is love. In chapter 7, he says, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. In Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because God's kingdom, above all, is a kingdom of love. But verse 43 shows how the the Pharisees have twisted God's word. You won't find a verse anywhere in the Old Testament that tells people to hate their enemies. But uh, but the Pharisees, rather, had taken the positive command to love their neighbor and taken from it the permission to hate their enemies. It's an example of how they twisted God's law to try and soften its punch, to turn it into something that they could obey rather than something that exposed their failure. The way of the world, then, is that of a a love-hate relationship. But Jesus is having none of it. So he says, do not hate your enemies. Love them and pray for those who persecute you. Because, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You may know that the tax collectors were considered the worst of the Jews. The Gentiles weren't even God's people at all. So Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you religious leaders are no better than the most godless people in the world. They might operate on a system of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours, but that's not to be the way of God's kingdom. It's not enough to love only the lovely, to pretend that we, we haven't noticed someone when they walk into the room because we didn't find them easy to act as they were in a rush because there's someone would rather avoid, to choose to spend time only with people who are in a position to reciprocate our affection. It's been said that love for those who are like us is really just self-love. Love for those who are like, love for those who like us is ordinary. Love for those who are unlike us is extraordinary. But love for those who dislike us is revolutionary. And the way of the kingdom is the way of indiscriminate love. Think what your father in heaven is like, says Jesus. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so when you are indiscriminate in your love, you are being like him. That's the sense in which we're sons of the Father here. It's like we're a a chip off the block. Our character reflects his. 
The Lord is good to all, says the psalmist. He has compassion on all that he has made. That's true in creation. God gives life and breath to billions who ignore him. And wonderfully, but in a different way, it's true in salvation as well, isn't it? We know that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And it was while Jesus was hanging on the cross that he practiced what he preached here in verse 44 and prayed, Father, forgive my murderers for they don't know what they're doing. And so the indiscriminate love of God becomes our standard on a very personal level. Maybe you you can think of someone who hates you, someone who's only ever treated you as an enemy. You wonder, how will I ever be able to love them? And it is never easy to forgive and to love an enemy. But do you know the grace of, of Jesus is sufficient even for that and to help you? If you were to start by a asking God to help you to want to love them. Well, you'll be surprised how he can change your heart. God never commands us to do something that he won't also empower us to do by his spirit. The requirements he sets for us are always matched by the resources that he gives to us. And God's design is to make us more like him. He wants us to be Holy as he is holy, to love because he is love. And in verse 48, to be perfect because he is perfect too. That will be our total experience one day if we're believers. 1 John says we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. But even now as we wait for heaven, we can reflect his glory in the world through our transformed kingdom lives. What a prospect that is. What a privilege for a church. If I may, though, I want to end our time in this supremely challenging chapter of God's word slightly differently. Uh, The novelist Sir Kingsley Amos was famous for his atheism. He was once asked if it was true that he didn't believe in God, and he said, It's more that I hate him. So he didn't keep his cards too close to his chest. But just before he died, he was being interviewed about his beliefs. And he said to the journalist, one of the great benefits of organized religion is that you can be forgiven your sins. He said, that must be a wonderful thing. Because I have to carry my sins around with me. And there is no one to forgive me. It could be that someone feels like that even this morning. Matthew 5 is a a brutal chapter. As Don Carson put it, it, it's like it burns so brightly that it sears and it burns us. But as we close, I want us to remember that the word of God doesn't just burn It heals. As we close, might you turn on a a page or, or two maybe in your Bible to the very first incident that's recorded in Matthew 
after Jesus's sermon. It's chapter 8 and verse 2. And there are crowds everywhere, but then out of the crowd comes a leper. And back in the first century, leprosy was a double problem. It left you not just physically unwell, but spiritually unclean. And the story of this leper is put here to speak specifically to anyone who reads the Sermon on the Mount and realizes that they too are unclean before God. When the leper sees Jesus, he kneels before him and prays, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And if anyone were wondering, how will Jesus respond to you if you were to kneel before him this morning and to admit to him the dirtiness of your soul and the mistakes you've made in your life, then verse 3 is your answer. I love how Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched the untouchable and he said, I will, I am willing, be clean. Immediately, that man's leprosy and everything that it symbolized was cleansed. And if I can put it this way, that the hand of Jesus is extended still. His grace and through his death on the cross, he offers to us an experience and a comfort that it seems very sadly Kingsley Amos for one never knew but that can be yours today. Because if you come to him, poor in spirit, if you admit your need and ask him, he will say, I am willing, be clean forevermore. And then by the power of his spirit, he'll go to work on your life as he goes to work on the life of all of us and transform it bit by bit from the inside out, so that more and more we might live the kingdom lives to which he calls us and live up to this glorious privilege of striving to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together as we close. And Almighty God, once again, your word does expose us and shows us how far short we fall. We know that we haven't always told the truth perfectly. We know that our yes hasn't been our yes and our no hasn't been our no. We can think of times that we've stood on our rights and retaliated and sought vengeance rather than peace. We confess that there have been times when we have failed to love even those closest to us, let alone our enemies. By nature, we are not perfect. And so we do want to praise you once again for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to praise you for the way that he responded to that leper. I am willing to be clean. 
Thank you for that physical healing on that day and for the way that it pictures for us the spiritual cleaning that Jesus gives to all who come to him poor in spirit. Thank you that he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We claim that forgiveness and blessing afresh this morning. And we pray that your grace might teach us more and more to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives to the praise and glory of your holy name. Help us to be people of truth and peace and love, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.